0: A reading from the lesson from the letter of James. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please while to the other one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. The word of the Lord. thank be to God.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a man and a woman who decided to get married. So they gathered their friends and family in the church. They took their vows. They exchanged rings. The priest pronounced them husband and wife. They kissed, people cheered, they danced at the reception, and then each returned to their separate homes, spending the rest of their lives alone. There was once a man who hadn't eaten in several days and he was extremely hungry, but destitute as he was, he had no way of procuring food. A celebrated chef in that same city encountered the hungry man one day and invited him to sit at the chef's table in his restaurant and enjoy a seven-course meal complete with wine pairings and dessert liqueurs. The hungry man arrived on the appointed evening, but with each plate presented to him, he picked at it and waved it away, refusing to eat any part of the incredible meal that was prepared for him at no cost to himself. If we knew these people, what would our reactions be? What do we say to the man and the woman whose wedding we attended? Particularly, I think, with this analogy of marriage, a marriage isn't consummated until it's, you know, consummated, right? Consummation within the marital bed is rooted in the vows taken at the wedding ceremony and then expressed within a committed relationship wherein each partner seeks to serve the other with tangible acts of love and mercy. But the vows, on their own, are almost meaningless apart from the embodied fulfillment they point to in a husband and wife living together. James tells the churches of the diaspora, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can that faith save you? For James, faith without works is as ludicrous as getting married and then living alone for the rest of your life. In James' words, it's as insane as a Christian brother or sister, someone that we would know being naked and starving, having absolutely nothing of their daily essentials, and us just sort of waving at them and saying, Hey, Joe, keep warm and well fed. It just doesn't make sense. But what James does next here I think is really interesting because he's setting up this theoretical argument. And then he begins answering objections. But his imaginary objector objects in the opposite direction that we would assume, given what we just heard read for us. James is just saying, If you think you can have faith without works, you're wrong. That faith can't really save you. And then he brings up this hypothetical objection. But someone might say, You have faith, and I have works. Wait, isn't that backwards? Wouldn't we expect James' theoretical objector to say, You have works, and I have faith? Since James here is talking about the importance of works. What is he getting at? Well, as is so often in the scriptures, these paradoxical antinomies, James is insisting that he will have his cake and he will eat it too. Back to the marriage analogy. You can have the ceremony, but if you don't have a life together afterward, the ceremony is all but meaningless. But here James pivots, and if he was using this metaphor, he would say you can live together all you want, But it doesn't make you married. It's both and. You have to take the vows, and then you have to live together. Now, we could easily get derailed right at the beginning here. After all, I am standing in a Lutheran pulpit, and it was Luther himself who referred to this as the epistle of straw. This is a tough text, and it would be easy for us to just sort of worm our way out from under what James is saying by talking about, you know, isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? The scriptural answer to that question is, yeah, go on. Keep talking. Because to have faith is not simply to make mental checklists about Christian doctrine. The sort of fideism that says, whew, bullet dodged, I avoided judgment, and now I can get on with my life is not faith as the New Testament defines it. Faith is rather an active trust that Christ, the Crucified One, is the King of all the worlds. It is a continual posture of conversion. It is to place yourself at Christ's mercy. As the church sings in the Te in morning prayer, you, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. When you became man to set us free, You did not shun the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in glory. We believe that you will come and be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people, bought with the price of your own blood, and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. To have faith is to live your life in the knowledge that Christ's judgment of you is the only one that matters. And it's here that I think the analogy of us being starving people who have been invited to the chef's table by the chef himself is helpful. I don't know about you, but the Christianity that I grew up in was mostly a fairly joyless affair. The moral life was conveyed mostly in terms of Finger wagging. Do these things, don't do those things. You sort of run your choices through the guiltometer. Do you guys have a guiltometer? I've got a big guiltometer. It's got a hair trigger. What I do or what I don't do, I just sort of run through this grid of like, well, how guilty is it going to make me feel afterwards? But that is not what James is about at all, not even close. A working faith is all about teleology. It's all about the goal, the thing that you were created for. And one of the things that we as human beings are created for is to eat. You were made to eat. Even as a little baby, when you were still covered in vernix, you could smell the milk, and you went and got it. This eating allowed you to grow and develop and learn to crawl and walk and hear your name and eventually do long division and other terrible things. (laughs) In your Christian life, you came to a place of trust in Christ and you were brought into the new birth through the water of baptism. And with the oil of chrism still on you, you can smell the bread and the wine and you know where to get it. And this eating allows you to grow and develop and to do all of the good works that you were created in Christ Jesus to do. Faith and works are not in competition. To assume so is to misunderstand both faith and works. I think too often our approach is reflected in this Pete the Cat book that my kids have. Pete the Cat is a real moron. I don't know what this guy's deal is. But he goes to make a sandwich. He wants a big sandwich. And so he literally goes to the fridge and he lays out a whole fish on top of a loaf of bread still in a bag. And that's the sandwich. And then he puts a whole apple on top of it and just goes from there. It's fragmented. Right? It's not a cohesive whole. It's like going to a modernist restaurant and ordering a deconstructed pizza and the server brings you out a breadstick and a can of tomato sauce. No! That's not why we're here. The reason that I've been so explicit these last few weeks about the essential work that we have to do in developing the life of prayer is because the Christian life is meant to be a coherent whole that all points in the same direction. I mean, it can't just be me, right? Do you feel the tension of being pulled in too many directions at once? You have to pay your bills and go to work and feed your kids and feed the dog and reply to Facebook and eat lunch and go to the dentist, and now your pastor's telling you you've got to add prayer times and generosity to the poor and all of this other stuff, and it's overwhelming. But it's overwhelming because our desires are pulling us in different directions. And I think so often, we fail to even ask, what is God's desire? What does He want? What direction is He pulling us? As we say so often here, God's greatest desire is for you to live your life hidden with Christ in God. Another way of saying this is that God desires for you to become a saint. And your job, your family, your marital status, your physical limitations, your financial situation, none of these things are roadblocks on the path to sainthood. They are the road. The particularities of your life, the you of you, these are the channels through which God longs to refashion you into the image of Christ. I think this is partly why the Decalogue ends by saying, you shall not covet. Because it is too easy for us to look at others and see only the good and none of the pain, and we get so busy wishing that we had their life that we fail to recognize that God is actually at work in the midst of the very things that we find so limiting and distasteful in our own lives. That is where God is showing up. What I'm saying to you is the life... Of faith and the life of prayer are the same thing. It's having your ears opened to hear the voice of God speaking to you. It's having your eyes opened to see the world the way that Jesus sees the world. Most of us, especially if you're on the younger end, we live with this little thing humming under the hood that's almost imperceptible to us. FOMO. You feel? See, I'm, I'm hip, I'm cool. I, I know about acronyms and stuff. Do you guys know about FOMO? The fear of missing out. We keep looking over our shoulder for a better party or a better partner, a better job or a better <clears throat> church. <laughs> Come on. FOMO, though, the fear of missing out, isn't bad in itself. We've just got it pointed in the wrong direction. Our fear of missing out should be that we're missing out on what God is already at work doing in our lives and what he is calling us to do with each day, every moment, every breath. Have you, have you thought about this before? God wants you to become a saint. Not because he's upset at you. There's no anvil hanging out over the cliff, right? Ready to drop. There's no big piano coming down. He wants you to become a saint because this is the best way for you to become who you are, a true human. He wants you to strive within that great cloud of witnesses, our mothers and fathers in the faith, who turned the world upside down by finding God's work in the mundanity of their lives. That's how they did it. They set the world on fire by seeing God in the little daily things. Do you know that Jesus leaps up within himself when he thinks about you? He is filled with joy that you exist. And he also can see clearly the you that he longs you to become if you would allow him to fashion you more and more into his image. He can see the you that has directed all of your life toward him in joyful praise, the you that will one day hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant, when he returns. Do you see that doing the works of faith is is not this drudgery? You've been invited to the seven-course meal, pick up your fork and start eating. Yesterday was the feast of St. Cyprian, who was a bishop in the early church, and he was eventually beheaded because he would not deny Christ. Last Thursday was the feast of St. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom, so-called the golden Mouth preacher, was also a bishop in the church just a few decades after Cyprian. He was actually exiled twice, mostly because he would not soften his preaching to pacify the wealthy and powerful. And the second time that Chrysostom was exiled, he died. He never saw the end of it. And it wasn't until 31 years after his death that his remains were brought back to Constantinople where he had been bishoped and buried. It's fitting that we should consider Chrysostom as a worthy model for us to emulate as he, like our passage in James, had much to say about the way we use our money. The way that our treatment of the poor reflects the true state of our faith. St. Chrysostom said this about our wealth. Our Lord's things they are. From wherever we may attain them, our Lord's things they are. And if we distribute to the needy, we shall obtain for ourselves great abundance. And for this it is that God has permitted you to possess much Not that you should spend it in fornication, in drunkenness, in gluttony, in rich clothing, or any other mode of luxury, but that you should distribute it to the needy. And just as if a receiver of taxes having in charge the king's property should not distribute it to those for whom it is ordered, but should spend it for his own enjoyment, he would pay the penalty and come to ruin. You following it? If the tax collector collects the taxes and then uses them for himself, he's busted. So also the rich man is, as it were, a receiver of goods which are destined to be dispensed to the poor, to those of his fellow servants who are in want. If he then should spend it upon himself more than he really needs, he will pay hereafter a heavy penalty, for the things he has are not his own. What are the things of his fellow servants. Now, Chrysostom is talking here directly about wealth. And I would say that most of us in this room need to hear him speak directly to our finances and the ways that we have formed our lives and our spending habits. But we can't also limit it just to our finances because it's more than that, it's our whole lives. The things that we have are not our own. They come from God and they are to be used for his glory and for the benefit of our fellow servants. Which means that our time, our abilities, our freedom, our very existence is a gift given to us to be put to work, to be put to use in God's work of growing us up into Christ who is our head. Friends, we have been given a glorious salvation. It's not one that we could earn in a thousand lifetimes. Christ is the one who came and sought us out, who gave up everything for the benefit of people who weren't even God's servants. We were his rebels. And yet he came. He did not shun the virgin's womb. He took on death. And he rose again to newness of life, and what we believe truly is that he will come and be our judge. Don't go out and try to do a bunch of work in fear. If you have been baptized, you have put on Christ. When he judges you, he sees himself. But there is a whole richness of life in him that many of us have not really attained. In a few moments of silence now, I encourage you. Listen to the Spirit. God longs for you to become a saint, which means that he longs for you to become more truly who you are, not the person next to you, not the person behind you, not another person from church history. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you who he is making you to be,